0: All set, group? All, all set! <laughs> hey Fred, the Gruesomes are all set too. Good! A one! A two! I, I said ya-yeah! Yeah, yeah. He said yeah, yeah. Said yeah, yeah. She said yeah, yeah, yeah. I said ya. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. said guy-yeah. Yeah, yeah. She bug, said yeah, music? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. bug music! I can't stand bug music!
1: I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Tarros. The Beatles
0: make
2: like it.
3: was Have You Heard the Word by the fat?
1: I was going to ask you, Richard, have you heard the word? Oh, I've heard the word. The word is love. Well, that was one of my favorites. Mm. When we were first talking about doing this show a million years ago, I, I remember saying to you that I was collecting seriously as a Beatles fanatic since about 1974. In those early days, we would circulate bootleg tapes, cassettes, sometimes reels, you know, the real serious guys, you know, worked on seven-inch reels. And certain songs would come up, you know, people were, it's not like today where bootlegs aren't as instantaneous, but they are pervasive, they are ubiquitous. And you can get them, you know, if you know where to go, you can get them online, you can, you know, there's peer-to-peer file sharing, none of this existed. You had to get turned on to somebody who had a list, usually typewritten written and Xeroxed. And these tantalizing song titles, there wasn't much circulating, but there would be these songs like Have You Heard the Word or Peace of Mind or something called Sitar Man, which we'll talk about a little later. Or The Girl with the Sun in Her Hand, I remember was rumored to be a Sergeant Pepper outtake. And I would read these things and go, oh, if I could only ever hear these. And you'd get a trade with somebody and it would be a 20th generation tape. It would sound pretty rough. But you'd be like, is it? Could it be? It sounds like them. You so wanted this to be the Beatles. Right, yeah. So I thought it might be an interesting show to revisit some of those because now we can get them in much better quality and we know the backstories on who most of these people are, with a few exceptions.
3: Well, in the case of this show, the word is Beatlesque. Okay. Everybody's favourite encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Uh describes a musical resemblance to the English rock band The Beatles. The term is loosely defined and has been applied inconsistently to a wide variety of disparate artists. Definitions. To better explain what the word might mean, eight possible answers were formulated by radio producer Kevin Howlett of the BBC, music professor Rob Bowman and Clartu drummer Terry Draper. More about Clartu in a bit. Yeah. These are their definitions. A Penny Lane style piano tone clusters, also heard on Getting Better and with a little help from my friends. The big ending, as in It's All Too Much. The bluegrass influenced close harmonies using fourth intervals. The I Am The Walrus inspired cellos. The stylistic contrast between Lennon and McCartney. The left-handed, right-handed drumming, referencing Ringo Starr's habit of playing right-handed drum kits, despite being left-handed. When audiences feel that the band is a continuation of The Beatles, as was the case for Klaatu. Or something that basically is resembling The Beatles' sound that ultimately means nothing, a copy without an original. The Toronto Star's Jack Sakamoto commented, Some people's notion of that sound includes everyone from Panic! at the Disco to Billy Joel to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. With those reference points, it's debatable whether the Beatles themselves would qualify for the adjective their music has spawned which I thought was pretty sharp. Culture Sonar's Scott Freeman argued that anyone who Beatlesque has, quote, got to be a band, not just a singer-songwriter with a backing band, but having multiple songwriters and multiple vocalists. Well, I'm not so sure about that.
1: Not so sure about that either.
3: And then finally, writing in 2017, Rolling Stone's Rob Sheffield identified Paul McCartney as the Beatle whose character best fits the term Beatlesque. Adding, if you dislike the Beatles, it's because you dislike Paul. If you love them despite their flaws, you mean Paul's flaws.
1: Now, I didn't write that. I wouldn't agree with that last point because at the same moment after they had left the Beatles in the 80s, both Paul and George decided to revisit the Beatles, as it were, in a song. Mm. Paul couldn't do it and George nailed it. So uh, Paul's attempt Was something called Return to Pepperland Which is positively dreadful Sorry for everybody who likes it
0: Return
1: George's captures all of the essence of the Beatles in When We Was Fab.
2: The microscopes that magnified
0: the tears studied Monsena Still alive
1: narrow it down to one of them because all of them made that sound is just like the guys were talking about Ringo's drum technique without right. Ringo's drums it doesn't sound like the Beatles I'm going to be
3: kind of deferring to you a fair bit on this show because this is much more your milieu than mine I'm not so much into these of Beatles artists really what interests me more are those ones where it really did fool me at the time or that where I thought wow they're really trying to sound like the Beatles you know but there were Others that have been on bootlegs and things, such as L. S. Bumblebee, right, which sounds absolutely nothing like the Beatles.
1: <laughs> but as I say, part of the fun of this show is to go back in time and to remember that this was the, this was bootlegging started happening for most people of college age and somewhat younger. Really, with the introduction of some of the the Let It Be bootlegs, that really is what kicked off Beatles bootlegging. I, I, the Dylan people would say it was the Great White Wonder and you know stuff from the '66 tour, and and they're right about that. But I just mean as as a bigger industry, as a as a thing, bootlegging kind of took off in America starting around '69 when all of a sudden, you know, there was this Beatles album that disappeared. It was supposed to be the next thing out, the Get Back album, and then it disappears, and then. You say, oh, it's going to come out later. Another bad American habit that then most likely crossed the Atlantic. What, bootlegs? Yes. I've heard bootlegs in Europe started well before uh, here. That uh, I've heard bootleg. Nothing but a vicious lie. Uh, well, I'm not buying that, of course. But uh, it's. Uh, I understand that some other guy was bootlegged back in the mid 60s you could get a bootleg of that so they say i mean we couldn't get it here that's for sure it was being bootlegged before the beatles even performed it i have don't know <laughs> i wasn't living there i could i could just i can vouch for how exciting it was to see these songs and try to you know could it be and now that we hear them with all of these many many years decades of listening to the beatles over and over We can pick up all of the nuances of what they are. But in the time, you know, it's very hard to put yourself back there. People had only a few years experience of listening to the Beatles, so they could be fooled a lot easier. It
3: was going on, right, almost from the beginning. I mean, inevitable in a way that people would try and capture that sound that is selling. And so, you know, if we start at like the real height of Beatle mania, 65, I always think of 65 as the kind of peak. You know, where they're now doing stadiums, they're filling stadiums in many cases, um, and it's never going to be quite at that level again. And right there in November of that year, in the States, a top 20 hit, the Knickerbockers with Lies. Lies,
0: lies, you're telling me that you'll be true. Lies, lies, that's all I ever
1: Very Beatlesque. They actually
3: recorded that with a specific intention of trying to sound like the Beatles. I don't think, you know, trying to fool people that it was the Beatles, but trying to capture that sound. They did pretty well.
1: And they did it very well, but at least they did it honestly as the Knickerbockers. There's a couple of things we that I'd love to talk about and just play a few seconds of. If you can believe it, when the first sort of counterfeit Beatles that I can think of happened in 1965, where there was literally a band called... The Beatles, spelled B E A T L E S, um, and they had a, a their actual name of the band. Interestingly enough, was the Five Shits. And according to uh, well, hold they, on, hold on,
3: the name of the band in 1965 was the Five Shits.
1: Well, that was their real band, but they changed their name to the spelling of the Beatles, not the Five Beatles, but just Beatles. It says if you look at the label of the record of a, a record called "The Girl I Love." Which is sort of a doo wop on a record company called Quest. I just loved the Wally Pedrazic review of this record in uh, Altogether Now, which was, considering the quality of music, The Five Shits was an appropriate name (laughs) for this band. The non-shit Beatles. Did they get to hear about The Five Shit Beatles? I don't know. That's a great question. I don't think that record did anything, but there was also a band called the American Beatles, but spelled the way the the insect is spelled. But they looked like you, you hear you ever hear about this? They got booked to play South America by some enterprising American impresario? No, yo, you he didn't hear about this? Yeah, it was in '64 or '65. Once again, these guys they called themselves the American Beatles, and they looked like the Beatles and dressed a lot, like them. They had the haircuts. And I guess once the South Americans went to see these affordable shows, because, you know, the economic situation in the 60s in South America wasn't all that great, which is one of the reasons, you know, the Beatles never went, is from what I've understood is because of the economics, it was probably going to be too expensive Mm. for the locals to see. But I guess once they found out about these phony Beatles, (laughs) the spaghetti hit the fan. So there was this kind of movement around that period to deceive people, and then it went into the next sort of phase where it's the sound-alikes, like the Knickerbockers who weren't trying to say that they were the Beatles. And then you started getting, as I say, these mysterious songs as the Beatles got further in their career and directly related to when they got off the road. Right. Now,
3: one sec, staying in 1965 for a second, have you ever heard the track by a band called The Tiki's, Pay Attention to Me? I know you'll be shocked to hear that it wasn't a hit. <laughs> However, the that same band, the Tiki's, then evolved into Harper's Bazaar, who did have a hit with their cover of Simon and Garfunkel's 59th Bridge Street song, Feeling Groovy.
1: No, oh yes, I remember them.
3: So once we get past that sort of Beatlemania phase, and of course, the soundalikes, you know, even like the Knickerbockers, as good as that was... It's always behind the curve, isn't it? Yeah. By the time we get into kind of the Pepper era, there are artists who are trying to play catch-up. One that particularly comes to mind is the Pretty Things album, SF Sorrow, which was released in oh, December yeah. 68, right? That's a psychedelic concept album produced at Abbey Road by
1: Norman Smith. One of my favorite tracks on that is talking about the good times, which to me is very Beatlesque, but not trying to pre- pretend to be the Beatles in the sense of, this is a Beatles record in disguise, but that we are, we're kind of like the Beatles too. You know, we can do that sound too.
0: i just
1: I really feel that that period, uh, once the Beatles got off the road in 66, they disappeared. Mm. And uh, in the sense that they're only going to be on TV very limited, you know, they made promotional films now and they weren't making any, they didn't do any concerts. And so the only place you could really see them is, uh, you know, which was breaking the business mold at the time. Everybody toured. You could see them in fan magazines and in their promotional films. So that's where all the, the root of all these crazy rumors, you know, why did they get off the road? And a, a sense of mystery started to surround the band. And um, that's where you had, to me, some of the, the roots of what I got into in collecting, mm. that people to kind of flesh out their list would, would find this obscure record and say, oh, this is the Beatles in disguise. Right. The first thing after the Beatles got off the road that was, you know, in a, in a linear fashion, in, in sequence, I think the first one that was rumored to be the Beatles was L.S. Bumblebee by Cook and Moore. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I think that fell into uh, tape trading circles. And, and I think part of it was because John was on as a guest star was on the, the comedy show that, that they did not only but also
0: there is a little insect not many people see he's known to all the insect as the L.S. bumblebee so when you hear him coming just throw away your tea that psychodilic coming will mean you'll soon be free Draggy, draggy, Freak out, baby. The bee is coming. <laughs> I can hear the hum of the WLS bum, bum, bumblebee. Bum, booze, 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 Now it's time to fly.
1: actually sounds a lot more like piper at the gates of dawn to me
3: yeah i mean i first heard ls bumblebee on a bootleg in the late 70s so i was like in my late teens and as naive as i was back then regarding beatles and many other things yeah. i uh, never fell for that one for one second it was like nothing about it sounded like the beatles you know not the production sound the instrumentation the vocals the kind of song that they would perform it was like what's this doing on here
1: well, see, I was fooled by it, I must say. Um, I was. You were always much more of an innocent, weren't you? Absolutely, to this day. It's that nine-month difference. Yeah, it is. Anyway, there was a bootleg called LS Bumblebee, which actually had a printed cover, which a lot of bootlegs didn't. They just had, you know, inserts. And actually, I think I've told you this story before. It's how I bonded with uh, Joe Pope. He was the one that he was on my teenage radio show pushing his uh, Beatles convention, mm. which was called Mystery Tour '75. And in the, we played it as a bumper. I said, okay, this is from a bootleg Ellis Bumblebee. And we played that as the bumper. And as we go, went to commercial, he says to me, that's not the Beatles, dude. You know, I was like, it's not? <laughs> and he goes, no, it's Cooking More." And he, he explained the whole thing. And when we came back, he let me be the hero. And of course, a lot of people think that's the Beatles, but it's, of course, Cooking More. So what is the story? Why did it get onto beetle bootlegs? Because bootleggers, I think, were a different breed than traders. They were looking to make some money bootlegs actually sold and made a huge profit in in back in the day because they they were much more expensive than real albums they were like twice the price of a real album
3: so where you're going with this is like the concert for Camper Cheer for me where i pay 52 pounds to a scalper who's telling me he's seen all the beatles going into the hammersmith odeon
1: yeah very similar to that and and they would have real they would they would never put out a compilation of all stuff that wasn't the Beatles. They would just slip a couple in to pad it out. But because it, you know the recording quality was very bad on the bootleg, and we were hungry for new Beatles stuff. The Beatles have been gone for five years. And the other thing is, as I say, we we didn't have the 50, 60 years experience of listening to the Beatles. So for some of us, you wanted to believe. And so therefore, uh, as a matter of fact, they tried to salvage it. It would still get traded around as, well, you see, Lennon sang on this. And since Lennon had been on the show and, you know, that's, I mean, I still love L.S. Bumblebee because it's Cockney slang. You see, the one that fooled me was the one that we played at the top of the show, Have You Heard the Word? That came out in 1970 and was Maurice, Maurice Gibb, Gibb. uh drunk apparently, according to Lulu. I think Lulu told the story, he'd had been drinking. <laughs> Which I guess he did a lot. But it's very Beatles sounding, beatle feeling. The Threatles should have recorded it. Well, when it was figured out who it really was, they still tried to say, oh, yeah, but you know, Ringo was Morris's neighbor. There's a couple of Beatles on. John's singing with him, <laughs> you know. So they did try to pass that off for years and years. Yeah,
3: Ringo was in the same town when yeah. it was
1: recorded. <laughs> well, he's right across the heath. Or I think they lived in uh, Highgate at the time, probably. In Highgate, yeah. Now that sounds like the Beatles. Really does to me. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it funny though? It seems to me,
3: and we're going to see it as we go through the show, quite a lot of the Beatles sound likes, the ones where they're either trying to put one over on us or at least sound Beatlish. Often vocally, it's Lennon that they try to imitate. It's as if they've zeroed in on his voice being the most idiosyncratic within the Beatles.
1: Maybe just irresistible to do an impression of, too, because it is fun. You know, like uh, when you listen yeah. to the greatest. You know, the Ruddles, obviously the greatest pastiche, the greatest tribute to the Beatles.
3: It's just that I wish that Lennon impersonators, whether it was in song or even in films, didn't have to make him so nasally that is this like this, you know. Like, <laughs> God. I like your version. Yeah. Mine
1: makes him sound a bit more like Neil Aspinall. <laughs> well, you know, he did sign the autographs and stuff like that. I I think those ones, though, those, let's face it, I was fooled by, have you heard the word the stuff that blows my mind in early '68, I think it was, uh, a, a record came out by Lord Sitar. Yes. An album, and uh, one of the things we're going to play, Richard, is a very rare air check in my collection from WBZ, which was, you know, the rock and roll station on the AM side in the '60s, and you can hear Dave Maynard, the one of the main DJs, playing this instrumental lounge music. <laughs> it's like bad airport lounge music with sitars going through it. already.
2: It's only been out about ten days. Lord Sitar, George Harrison, really, and uh, Black is Black, the
3: old Los Bravos things. Twenty-three minutes before ten o'clock, WBC time. Yeah, this is how rumours begin, isn't it? Yeah. What is it with your American DJs? You know, whether it's Russ Gibbs or this guy with Lord Sitar. What do you mean? What is it? Well, it's what? All this rumour mongering.
1: It's called shit stirring. <laughs> well, you could say that on American radio, kids. Don't touch that dial. You don't know where it's been. Yes, okay. <laughs> I didn't
3: want to encourage you.
1: Uh, you're, you're you're playing with fire. Anyway, why is that? Because I think American media was a little angry at the Beatles. The Beatles weren't playing along. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. were. Forget the the antagonism of the Jesus Christ statement, which was a couple of years previous, and that had blown over or whatever. I think it's the idea of disappearing. No more personal appearances. You know, they didn't very often call up a DJ. They did do for some of them, you know, and do a phone interview. Um, you know, Jim Stagg springs to mind. But those were pretty few and far between. So I think... Yeah, but the Beatles were still putting out recordings. It's not as if they weren't
3: recording at that time in 68.
1: But they were doing, as you said, all the imitators were behind the curve. What they were doing was usually so revolutionary, for lack of a better word, maybe they just believed, wow, maybe they really are just branching off and doing these things. They were always saying the Beatles were splitting up in that period. So maybe George is Lord sitar, you know, or remember one of the things that probably led to this could have been um Woman by Peter and Gordon being written by Paul hmm. but but credited to Bernard Webb. So I'm maybe, glad you said Bernard and not Bernard. Uh well, you mean like the dog, the Saint Bernard? That's a bloody Saint Bernard. You, well, see, you, you can try to you can try to get common as muck with that, but as soon as you say Bernard, you know, you, you have to do it with Long Island Lockjaw. He got it. must be a Yale man. Anyway, well, um, what we don't do is say it's a Saint Bernard. Bernard. I don't say Bernard. I say Bernard. If you're from Boston, you say Bernard. Saint oh, Bernard. 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 So that's get uh, Bernard to park the car. Exactly. But I mean, so so the crazy ones like that. How the hell could you believe that George Harrison? with a straight face would do If I Were a Rich Man as an instrumental. <laughs> that, even at age eight, I wasn't buying. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Well, even an eight-year-old could figure that out because I remember this record and, and obviously I have these ear checks, but there's one mysterious, wonderful record. We must play this one now because I this one had me fooled and I, it wasn't until I actually spoke with Pete Best and showed him the record that I was my hopes were dashed. So I want you guys to, in your mind, before we play this, you've got to imagine Pete Best. It's 1967 in the late fall. He's heard Sergeant Pepper, just like everybody else. He tries acid and he suddenly, this fantastic Beatlesque esque Pepper-esque song comes to him. And then he rushes into the studio and he creates his masterpiece, Carousel of Love.
0: Come round, the show is on, the shouting in the air See hurdy-gurdy rides, take time to stop and stare See the people grinning, blurry faces spinning Riding on the carousel of love
1: So what do you think of
3: that? Well, if that's the carousel of love, can I get off here?
1: No, no, no. I mean, now, it doesn't sound like Pete Best singing, but then again, I wanted to believe, and I'm thinking, this is a really cool little record. And it was on Capitol, right? And and was a promo. As a matter of fact, that's the one I had was a promo. I'm not sure it actually ever got released here. I do know the story, though, of who this Peter Best was. I found out after... The real Pete Best told me it wasn't him, so I had to do some digging.
3: And what did you find with your digging?
1: Well, I it, I dug a hole all the way to Australia. And uh, mm. he used to... This guy, Peter Best, that truly was his name. He was the leader of a band called The Pogs, P-O-G-S. And they were out of uh, Sydney, Australia. Was Peter Best actually trying to pretend that he was Pete Best? I don't think so, but I'm not so sure that the people in Capital you know, they weren't necessarily the sharpest knives in the drawer and maybe they thought it was the same Pete Best. You know what I mean? Like
3: Another device by Dave Dexter, wasn't it?
1: It might have been. That was the end of the year, 67 into 68. Along with those two records that, you know, Lord Sitar sounds nothing like it. Peter Best, oh, well, I wanted to believe. But here's another one that's trying to make people think it's the Beatles because they're singing through a Leslie speaker. I don't know. It's a... Uh, One of my favorite records, and it's called We Are the Moles, and We Stay in Our Holes. And it's by The Moles.
0: We are the moles, and we stay in our holes. Hiding our faces, revealing our souls.
1: What did you think? Is that is that uh, John Lennon singing? Well again, yeah, it's someone certainly trying to sound like John Lennon singing. Not just anyone. Do you know who that is? I mean, besides being the lead singer of the Bulls. Trivia question. Nope. Go uh, on. I'll I'll <laughs> flip all the cards. Simon Dupree and the Big Sound actually made that Oh,
3: record. kites. It
1: didn't sell. You know what I mean? I'm not surprised. See, sometimes these things worked out. That one didn't sell, but as you heard on that sound check just a little bit earlier, that, you know, Lord Sitar had at least a top 30 record in Boston, you know, on on the rumor mill because it was supposed to be George. Yes. So before we leave 1968, Richard, I want an answer to a question. How about if a sibling of a Beatle does an homage to the Beatles? A sibling of a Beatle, it's got to be Mike McCartney. It is Mike McCartney, and this is a psychedelic masterpiece recorded on June 18th, 1968 at Delane Lay Studios. So on Paul's 26th birthday. Yeah, and the cast of characters on this record is not to be believed. The backing band is Jimi Hendrix and the the Experience. Dave Mason is in there. Paul is producing, and uh, it's two-thirds of the scaffold. This is a real masterpiece It's from a very rare album I did have a chance to speak to Mike about it one time And his face just lit up He goes, that's one of my favorite things ever And this incredible little tune Sounds very beatles to me And it's called So Much In Love
0: So much in love The days So much. So much and love.
1: One of the most credible ones I've heard, and Beatlesque phasing. Well, because a real Beatle was doing the phasing in the control booth, probably. Now you start getting the the really weird stuff, the songs that are rumored again to really be the Beatles, in the time period.
3: Yeah, because of course once the Beatles have split up, and you know people keep talking about them getting back together. You remember '73. Heavy rumors around the time of the Red and Blue album, wouldn't you know it? But these rumors that the Beatles were seen going back into the studio at Abbey Road. They're working on a new album. And of course, it all came out to a big fat nothing. And so then these
1: bootlegs, you know, fill that void. They do. There was a lot of romance around certain ones. There's one last one that still has this aura and debate is still going on to, th- to this day in Beatles forums around the world and uh, this was supposedly found in a trash can at Apple in 1970 and it immediately started to show up on bootlegs and uh, this song is called Peace of Mind and let's play yeah. it and see what y- you think I'm
0: looking at the candle a the flame I keep the candle laughing I turn my face to cry The safety pin returns my smile I love to breathe hello While you are building molecules within your gun home Why can't this last forever?
3: Oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, my bootleg had a photo of Lennon from I think like 70 or 71 on the cover, um, with a, I think with an acoustic guitar singing.
1: Oh yeah, that got recycled a bunch of times. There was two companion pieces that would also show up, one of which kind of sounded like maybe it was a, a George Harrison and Paul McCartney experiment, and this would get passed around as a song called on bootlegs as sitar man but the real name of the song is frenzy and distortion and this is one of my favorite two minutes cool. Do you hear the almost McCartney-esque singing at the end that goes off into the echo chamber that had me fooled It
3: makes a welcome change that it's McCartney not Lennon
1: Yes and I think as you said harder to do a Paul McCartney impression Yeah At the exact same time there was this rumor about a song called it was supposedly a George Harrison uh, composition uh, and this was making the rounds heavily and it was called Pink Litmus Paper Shirt <laughs> sound familiar to you that song
3: yeah again i heard that at the time It was another one oh you know it's a beatles what one of the, those unreleased numbers
1: and it turns out that this was a uh, an early version of a of a sid barrett track so it's actually a sid barrett bootleg but it got passed around as a as yeah, a so beatles even
3: one. sid was trying to muscle in
1: a lot of money a lot of coin there you know
3: So in this part of the show, we've been talking about the songs that in some cases were really perceived by some people as being the Beatles or being pitched that way, at least. But then there were the ones where people were either, you know, just paying homage to them or you could say ripping them off in some way or another that ran right the way through the 70s. I mean, at the beginning of the 70s, you could say Badfinger, right? You know, I mean, you know, produced by Mal Evans, no matter what. (laughs) It's just got that Beatle feel all over it. You know, there's George's involvement and other Beatles, and I thought we were a really great band, actually, Bad Finger. And in a way, you could level at them what's been leveled at Oasis. I know that might cause controversy, but, again, I've always seen Oasis as a band not ripping off the Beatles, but actually paying homage to them. And so you, you have No Matter What, which was what, that was top five UK, top ten in the US in November 70.
1: By the time No Matter What was a hit, People were aware that Badfinger really wasn't the Beatles, but had the Beatles sound and had the Beatles yeah. pedigree. You know, they were on Apple, yeah. right? But I think when I first heard Come and Get It, I thought that was the Beatles, you know, um, it, the year earlier in '69, right?
0: If you want it, here it is, come and get it. Mm-hmm. Make your mind up. It may not
3: In 69, when you hear that, of course, it's written by Paul. It's produced by Paul based strictly on his demo, which he did on his own. So, of course, it's going to sound like a Paul Beatles song. But vocally, it fooled you because, again, it sounds like them. But it's not to a point where it actually ever fooled me that that was Paul on the song.
1: When I was nine years old, it did fool me. It's a shame I didn't know you back then. I might have made a bit of money off you. Yeah, you and everybody else. Well, I certainly spent enough money on phony bootlegs. Any bloody chance I would have had. Well, ditto. But um, but they were <laughs> one at least they were not trying to mislead. You're right. Oh yeah. As this process moved on, and now we're, you know, in the early seventies and tape trading is going on, there was one of the very big disappointments for me was finding out that something that was circulating as a Sergeant Pepper outtake, in fact, was not a Sergeant Pepper outtake and that is really my favorite of the soundalikes they weren't trying this band was not trying to pretend to be the Beatles they just loved them they were a band out of Sweden called Blonde with no e and this song is called Sun in Her Hand
0: I saw a girl in a silver land she walks along with a sun in her hand I wish that I could meet her perhaps one day I can She's the girl with a sun in her hand I'd laugh when I'm crying If I knew that she was there And I'd live when I'm dying If I knew that she would care She's the girl with a sun in her hand Silver land. Perhaps she'll give me the sun in her hand. Then we'll be together. I'd like to think we can. Cause she's the girl with a sun in her hand. I'd laugh with crying. If I knew that she was there. And I'd live with dying. If I knew that she would care she's the girl with the sun in her hand She's the girl with the sun
3: in her hand That's a very cool song, and I, I actually like Blonde. I've listened to quite a few of their tracks, and uh, another band that never really made it over here, did they?
1: No, they didn't. The tape that circulated was so many generations down and compressed. It really sounded... A little bit more beatily. What fooled me on this one was the bass, because to me, I felt, "Well, that's kind of McCartney style bass playing, isn't it?" You know, it, at the time when I was twelve or thirteen, when I first got this. So, when is that from? Is that from '70 or '71? Yeah, it was from '71, and it started showing up on bootlegs in '72 or 3. You know, at least I started hearing about it. It apparently had been around on people's list. People just didn't know. You know, it sounded kind of like them.
3: 71 was actually the same year that I first became aware of Slade. And they had their first big hit, which was Cause I Love You. That was October 71 release. And I think December of the same year in the States. And it was their first number one in the UK. The first of six number ones in the UK. Written by Noddy Holder and the bassist Jim Lee, who also played the violin on there. And, yeah. again, it's not Beatles, but it's got a Beatlesque feel. It wouldn't have happened without Beatles, let's put it that way. And Noddy Holder's voice always loved that. I was not a big fan of many of the Glitter-era acts, but Noddy Holder, to me, always sounded like Lennon on steroids. I won't
0: laugh at you when you boo because I love
1: Not saying that this ever fooled you as being the you, you just you just thought he, it was an homage uh,
3: correct to, to, one yeah. that fooled me one that really did fool me for i don't know certainly seconds maybe as long as a minute was elo 1975 most likely this would have been late one night had the transistor radio on remember those and i had Very well yeah i had one next to the bed and i'm listening to whatever radio station and i hear This song that I think, shit, it's Lennon. You know, I mean, what's this? This is something new. I haven't heard this before. And it was this track. Can't get it out of my head.
0: Midnight on the water. I saw. The oceans die.
1: Electric Light Orchestra, it's a nice group. I call them Son of Beatles, although they're doing things that we never did, obviously. But I remember the statement they made when the first formed was to carry on from where the Beatles left off with Walrus, and they certainly did. Taking it in this light, I agree with you. When I listen to it now, having not heard it in many years, and thinking that extra compression from a transistor radio, yeah, I would have been fooled in, in the first five minutes of that, too. He's absolutely going out of his way
3: to sound Leninish with the reverb on the vocal and even the affectations, you know, oh no, oh no. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's uh it's kind of ruttle-ish almost, but it is brilliant. I, it's a it's a great track, and I you know, I love the production, I love the performance, and again it's a homage to me. I I, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. You know, around that same time where the Beatles reunion rumours are rife, but nothing's happening. And there I am in my sort of mid-teens, really hoping against hope that this will happen, that there will be a reunion. So then the desperation <laughs> lends itself to not even ones that I'm being fooled by, but ones that I can kind of imagine in my head, it's the Beatles in in a reunion performing this song. And the one that really hit the target for me in that regard was this song by Pilot. Now, you know, you know from the song Magic.
0: Oh, ho, ho, it's magic, you know. Never believe it's that so.
3: Oh, the first time I heard it, I thought it was the Beatles. And they also had the hit January. But one of the sort of lesser known tracks was this one that made it just to the top 40 in the UK in 75. It was the lead off on their debut album, which was called from the album of the same name. And it's a track called Just The Smile. Listen to the production, including the background hand claps, the whole vocal arrangement. To me, it was McCartney at a Beatles reunion with their new single.
0: Make you mine anytime. If you're ever in need of love and care, I'll be there. Yes, there's something you can share.
1: You're saying in parts of it, you know what I'm thinking the whole time I'm listening to this. Though, well, number one for me, magic sounded more beatly to me than this. This sounded kind of like hmm. Mark Bolan to me. I was like, "Wow, is this like a T. Rex record or something?" You know, I mean, Yeah, I, I was catching a lot more like Bolan esque thing, you know, happening. But that was all, you know, floating around at that time as well. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a record I I don't want us to forget about playing because it. It has such an interesting history, and this is one that was also rumored to be a Beatles reunion record from a couple of years earlier, and it was a hit. It's the only one, I think, in the list uh, where it was really, truly confused with the Beatles, supposedly, but still a hit on its own. It's a group called Hot Legs, and this is Neanderthal Man. That was 71, but in the mid-70s, around the time of pilot, is when I heard this record the first time, because people told me, this is a secret record, once again, on the Capitol label, which oh. is, always seems to be a thread here. Happened with Pete Best, happened with 2 on the Capitol label, uh, Neanderthal man. The real story is almost more interesting, which this is Godly and Cream and Eric Stewart, who would later go become 10cc, and this recording was supposedly uh, a test tape. They had gotten some new recording equipment and they wanted to get a drum sound down and see what it was like. And they just built up a track for fun around it, which is why it's so heavy on the drums. And uh, this thing went on to sell, uh, you know, two million copies. I think it got to number two in the UK. It went to number one in Italy, by the way. Another thing about it, it was on Grapefruit Records, get it? You know, another little secret. Damn, yeah, So, th- so they're trying. So in other words,
3: what that betrays is... It's a willful attempt to fool
1: people. I think the part that the, in America, we didn't know about the grapefruit records. We just knew it was on Capitol, which may have been unintentional, but us reading into it once again, anything was on Capitol. Oh, it could be the Beatles, like that they had signed their life away to these people and were never you know, coming back.
3: Mm. i tell you something that was funny was it, this was like around, what would it have been? Most likely, 78, 79, yeah. and... The Rutles had already broken big, you know, on British TV. And that's another thing, by the way. When I first heard, I must be in love, on the radio, (laughs) which was, it was before the documentary had been broadcast. Someone actually said to me, a friend of mine said, did you see this billboard? It's like this band. It looks like the Beatles. They're called the Rutles. (laughs) The (laughs) Rutles. The Rutles. Yeah. So anyway, I suddenly hear this Hard Day's Night sounding track, you know, on the radio. And again, there's that instant reaction that it's Beatles and then you start listening a bit closer, you know. But that one, I think, pretty much had me fooled.
0: I feel good, I feel bad I feel happy, I feel sad I' am little?
3: So now we fast forward after the show was broadcast. I think it was the NME, New Musical Express, may have been Melody Maker, but one of them sort of said that they had this bootleg that showed that it was actually John Lennon demoing the song Cheese and Onions.
1: That can fool you, you know? I mean, it's I know it's nasty, and now we, we think that nasty is his own character. and Yeah, well, this, this was just like him on the piano. It was Neil Innes on the piano, I think, not
3: with the full band. Yeah and it fooled them until I don't know who clued in and basically said no 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 that's actually you're listening to Neil Innes demoing his own composition I have
1: We were talking about Two earlier, Richard, and I guess because of the tragic events in 1980, Two was really, to me, the last, could it be the Beatles? When I listened to calling occupants of interplanetary craft, I'm not hearing the Beatles sound. However, other people did at, in the day, and what was mysterious to people, and part of the rumor mill, and, and it was certainly rumored, it was like an open thing, They were on Capitol Records once again. The artwork did not show the band. It just had an illustration of kind of eh, a little bit behind it. Illustration, you know, happy, slightly late psychedelic type drawing. And people bit. And people like, well, could it be? Could it be some of the Beatles? I would hear that. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is like three of the Beatles and some of their buddies. And they're going to reveal all. And this is the way the Beatles are going to come back. So this, I think, was the last one. And it... It actually did well enough This was kind of a minor hit That you had beetle freaks A brother and sister team Known as the Carpenters Who latched right on this And they did a cover version Which I think was a bigger hit Than Klaatu's version And here's calling occupants Of interplanetary craft
0: In your mind You have capacities You know To telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate.
1: prefer that to the carpenters version. I'm not sure it's a, it's a coin toss for me. Um, you know, I had I used to work with this kid Scott who uh his two big passions in music were Norwegian death metal and the carpenters. And he would <laughs> I'm and I'm not making that up. That's what you call eclectic taste. <laughs> he, he was he was very eclectic and and he looked just like Ed Big Daddy Roth, you know, he had this kind of like slick back hair look and everything and uh yeah, he was an interesting kid, Scott. You certainly associate with some interesting people. Yourself included. Look in the mirror. <laughs> so, yes, uh, yes, I see
3: death metal and carpenters when I look at, <laughs> at myself in the mirror.
1: I, and I am not exaggerating. He would, he would interchange these things all day in the office. It was very funny. But anyway, so uh, now we're going to – what goes next now? We're getting into the uh, – Well, for ta- me,
3: it's a little story from the mid-'80s where I was writing for pro audio magazines, okay? So it was like these technical musical articles where I'm interviewing producers, engineers, sometimes artists as well, but about these specific recordings, the equipment they used and the production techniques. And so Dave Clark, he of the five, had a musical that he was producing um, in London at the Dominion Theatre in the centre of London called Time, and... You know, it had it was all state of the art production. I, I know they had a hologram of Sir Lawrence Olivier in the show. Wow. And yeah, and then they had this soundtrack album with various artists, and one of them was Julian Lennon. So I was doing this series of articles called tracks, and I'd interview someone about one particular song, and they would break it down for me, you know, how it was recorded. So yeah. Dave Clark said, yeah, he'd love to do it. He was the producer of this album. So yeah, come along. I said beforehand, I asked, you know, as a producer, are you technical? Will you be able to give me the technical info? Oh, yes, no problem. So I go along with the photographer. It was the first time I'd met Dave Clark. He didn't look like he'd looked in his 60s heyday at this point. He looked slightly strange, let's say, and uh, <laughs> Im- immediately said to the photographer, no photos. And it was we both understood that. And then we get into the interview and, you know, I sort of softball him with the first question. And it's like, how many tracks was this recorded on? And he said, 120. Now, back in the mid 80s, no one was recording on 120 tracks that I knew. So I was like, oh, wow. okay." so what was (laughs) on there? Oh, you know, vocals, guitars, bass, drums. Yeah. What else? That was it. I immediately know this is a non-interview right this is you know this is never going to go into the magazine how do I get out of this let's just you know be polite about it ask him a few you know bland questions and say thanks very much and during the course of that part of our interview he came up with a nugget that Julian had a far better voice than his father wow yes so judge for yourself
0: E ah. I love you It's It's wrong wrong. to say Don't
1: actually, I have the 12-inch of this. Uh, this has actually been you a would. favorite of mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Well, you're the guy that hooked up with uh, Naughty. <laughs> I mean, why slink. am I not
3: surprised that you've got the 12-inch of Because?
1: Do you think he was consciously trying to sound exactly like his father here?
3: Do I think? I mean, is that a serious question? Do I think he was trying... Uh, <laughs> He'd have to be deaf himself if he didn't know he was sounding like his dad. I mean, everything about that production, you know, it's heavy reverb. He's giving it the whole nasal Lennon sound. Yeah. yeah, right. And the sort of Buddy Holly-ish affectations. It's like they were absolutely setting out to make him sound like his dad. At the time, I was kind of stunned and thought like, wow, this is amazing. He really yeah. does sound like his dad. And when I was he playing to. it for various yeah. people saying, listen to this. But over time, I actually felt quite sad about it, really. You know, it's, a, it's another Dave Clark manipulation, um, but yeah. you know, business manipulation. And uh, he's got him doing what he wants him to do here. But how sad that he had to live in the shadow of his dad to that extent, you know, especially after the kind of relationship he'd had with his father. Makes me kind of sad listening to that now.
1: He, he did kind of revisit that well he, uh, again. You remember he did the Stand By Me cover, right? Like his yeah, dad as well. and, and also in
3: Hail Hell Rock and Roll, the Chuck Berry birthday concert, the film of that. He's in there singing Johnny Be Good and. He's a jolly be good, you know. <laughs> oh, please. It, it sounds really pushed there because it's a live vocal and uh, he's pushing it a bit too far at this point. Yeah. Also, Volote, right, where he's sitting on a pebble playing guitar, sitting yeah, on a cornflake yeah. maybe. You know, yeah. it was like, a, it, it was
1: wearing thin with me very quickly. We're sitting on a pebble waiting for the ideas to come. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I th- I loved it. He could. I used to go see Julian every time he was in town. I, I actually loved his music. You know, especially when he didn't try to just do dad stuff. I I, yeah, I mean, I,
3: I ran into him a few times in the clubs in London with the Lennon '68 look. And again, at that time, you know, it was like he was trying to find his way in life. I don't blame. I him think he was one bit. I don't either.
1: No, and no, people are not at
3: all. I just feel sorry for him. He's certainly not a pathetic figure, not in any way. No, not way. at all. No, no. But no, no. you know, I empathise with what he had to go through. Yeah. And the other thing about that recording is, you wouldn't be able to make us sound like Lennon like that for all the production <laughs> in the world, right? So it's it's you know genetics there. I mean, he certainly had something that he could do that, and and it was kind of impressive at the time.
1: You know, you've never heard my karaoke version of Help. Uh, no, no, I'm not going to either, Eric.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Won't be fooled again.
1: Oh, uh, do you do that one? That's a tough one.
3: <laughs> so, now what about Jellyfish? Are you familiar with that West Coast band, early 90s? The, their debut album was Belly Button and uh, very, very Beatlesque. Very successful. Interesting to hear it now in a sort of 90s setting, you know, so we haven't got the, the synth sounds and, and those sounds. It's like a more contemporary sound.
1: Really well done, I think. The song you're going to play is she still loves him. I listened to that Richard and the first time you suggested that you were going to play this on the show I was like I wrote down a note that said this could have been the flip side of when we was fab you mm, know just right. feels that effortless just nailing it without really trying too hard it's yeah just the, every little flourish is well placed it's a lovely record I, I'm actually going to go check out the album because I liked it so much
3: see that's the thing for me is that if I was going to pay homage to the Beatles, I wouldn't do it by trying to sound like them. You try and do it by trying to somehow capture their essence, or at least some of their essence, okay? You know, the the spirit of them, the personality, but not by just trying to sound like them. You're never going to do
1: that. What happens is, if you try to do it, is that you end up making a cartoon out of what might, might have been a really good track. It's like, Suddenly that becomes the subject is, oh, listen to that one trying to do Harris. Yeah, it becomes a parody. Do... Yeah, it does.
3: Now, that brings me to Oasis, right? So we're into the 90s. And as I said, I don't have a problem with Oasis. I'm actually a fan of theirs. I know some people really can't stand them. I know George had his little run-in with one of the Gallagher boys. Yeah, it's uh, too bad. Yeah, I know it is in a way. But uh, I actually think they're super talented. And they did capture the essence. I don't think they were trying to specifically sound like them, although there were some exceptions. Listen to this from 2005. This is a latter day Oasis track. It was actually the B-side of a single, Let There Be Love. And it went to number two in the UK. Who do you think's on drums with them? It's not their regular drummer, Alan White.
1: Oh, I think I know who's on drums in this one. I think uh, it was a guy that learned how to, well, it's a Beatle connection, isn't it? I think it's Zach Starkey. I think
3: you're right. And the track is Sitting Here in Silence on My Own. really trying to sound like Lennon there and not disguising it
1: oh everything about this is Lennon it's the piano sound I mean all all he needed to do was to have a picture sleeve where he's under a tree lying you know (laughs) lying on his back it would have been funny
3: yeah I mean you listen to something like don't look back in anger which I really love that track actually and the intro really just toys with the intro to imagine but again, it's homage. I don't think he's trying to rip them off and sneak this stuff in.
1: No, and Wonderwall was obviously to me the second I heard it. It's a sly reference to George's movie soundtrack. It doesn't. I don't sound even, think, I don't like even it. think it's sly. I think it's just an overt reference. Yeah, but it's it worked for me. And yeah, we're like kindred spirits. I don't remember which of the Gallagher brothers said this, but this is one of my favorite quotes by anybody about the Beatles in the latter day. And he said, people who say they don't like the Beatles are idiots. Even if you can't find one redeeming factor in the music, they were as funny as fuck and they looked good. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, whichever Gallagher brother, I salute you. Uh, you're absolutely fucking right. And I just loved the, the way he so poetically put got all the major points in. That's it. That's all you have to say to people who say they don't like the Beatles.
3: So let's play out with a really Beatlish track. It's by Splinter, the first act signed to Dark Horse Records in 1973, produced by George at Fryer Park and featuring him on guitars, keyboards and various other instruments alongside Gary Wright, Billy Preston, Jim Keltner and Alvin Lee. Mal Evans had actually discovered the duo of Bobby Purvis and Bill Elliott when he was a talent scout for Apple Records and then he became their manager and as Splinter those two co-wrote the first single, which went top 20 in the UK, and it really did illustrate that George was the ex-Beatle who best knew how to capture the Beatle vibe. Here is Costa Fine Town.
2: Dirty old hole in the side of the road For the man who cleans the street. Open pub doors where the working class goes at night Written on walls where the cats never
0: crawl For the glass along the top Man, I was born there, I'm gonna walk right back Costify town, it's a fight town The
2: Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Barton.
1: of homage. How about an homage to an homage of the Beatles? Are you ready for that? Yeah, that sounds like an impersonation of someone impersonating someone. It's it's precisely what that is. Uh, This is something that was floating around on the internet for a while, and it is a parody of Free as a Bird, supposedly uh, a Ruddles creation, but it does sound like Neil Innes in Places, but it's not Neil Innes. I did ask about it, and he says, oh, he was horrified. <laughs> not him. <laughs> because it's, it's a little rough, but uh, you think the audience could handle an homage to an homage?
3: Our audience can handle anything.
1: Well, then I think it's time to hear a very different version of Free as a Bird.